0: Central. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest news in tech from Ireland and of course across the world every Friday evening on RTE Radio or you can get it first on Friday mornings or of course anytime you like over the weekend with your favourite podcasting app from Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dusty Rhodes coming up today on episode 879, new smartphone announcements, Facebook wants us see your encrypted data and YouTube ban Sky News to chat about all the stories. Uh, we are with our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson. Niall, how are you? Uh, not too bad. We have a packed show to get through. We have so much stuff. Indeed. And then we've got the uh, Brian Goff as well, actually, kind of talking about uh, when you're thinking about website design, can you apply that to the health service? <laughs> Slightly simplistic. That's all to come anyway. It's a good interview though. Uh, First thing that I wanted to chat about though was uh, Samsung. This is going to be the big event of next week on the uh, 11th, next Wednesday. Yeah,
1: so you're the Samsung guy. Uh, yet another unpacked. Uh, yeah. What are
0: your impressions of um, the leaks? Because um, there have been a few. There have been a few, and I'm not really that excited. I'll watch it out of curiosity. I think more than anything else. But Samsung seem to have a bent for flip phones and foldable phones because the whole they, it, they it, have been trying to make them happen mm, for the last few years, and it ain't working, is it? And um, The invitation for the event just says, get ready to unfold. Duh. Okay, <laughs> there's not even There's not even a guessing game in that, is there? Mm, no. <laughs> so the, uh, the word is that they are going to reveal their latest version of the uh, flip and the fold, which will both be in their third iteration. So flip three, uh, the fold three. I'm not excited because I don't see what problem a folding phone is possibly going to solve for me.
1: Oh, I I think screen size is a huge sell, especially if you can get, you know, say if you could get a nice, wash seven and a half, eight inch screen, fold that down to four inches, that's much more pocket friendly. Uh, you you can get phablet size screen in theory into a, a mobile phone shape. I think that's, I think that's a pretty good selling
0: point. Mm, what would you do with it though? Because I'm all about, it, 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 screen size for me is relative mm. to where you are and what you're doing, okay? So I'm one yeah. of the old-fashioned people, right, where and I'm at my desk. I like a keyboard, I like a mouse, and I like a huge monitor, all right? Mm. Yeah. Um, I was actually just looking at my laptop and I was comparing it to my monitor the other day. The laptop is actually a quarter of the size of the screen (laughs) I have on the desktop. I go, how how do I use this thing on the road at all? Um, The laptop screen, um, because when I'm working on a laptop, I'm generally on the road. So I don't do as much advanced work. If you like, it's more Mm -hmm. looking at websites, email, da, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So a 13-inch screen is absolutely fine for that. Uh, and okay. then when I'm looking at a phone, I'm really just looking at the news. I may do a little uh, Facebook, some YouTube or something like that, to uh, snacking. Th- that's it. So those screen sizes work for me very, very well. So with Samsung kind of coming along and I say, but you can have an 8-inch monster screen in your head. Now, where would you use? Where would you use that bigger, <laughs> I can't even believe I'm saying yeah. bigger,
1: 8-inch screen? A bigger Asian screen. Uh, and of course, this is, this is all in theory, of course. Hmm. This is sort of the idea of a folding screen that would have very nice resolution. That would give you a, a little bit more real estate hmm. uh, to work with. Um, personally, I do an awful lot with social media uh, with my job. Uh, a lot of these apps are very busy on the screen. Hmm. So if there's a way to make them slightly more digestible, that would mm-hmm. be pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch a lot of video. Uh, on the move as well uh, i have quite a few youtubers that i follow so anything that would make that viewing experience a little more pleasant is is definitely um, uh, a plus plus. and uh, uh, that portability factor i don't think can be understated because i'm still using an iphone 7 mm-hmm. um, large enough screen pretty pretty happy with it But if it was a matter of being able to, you know, watch things that I want to watch in comfort, play Mm. games with a little bit more real estate uh, on the screen, that would be really good. Um, So when you come into sort of the entertainment functions as opposed to the business productivity functions, Mm. uh, I think there's definitely a selling point there. I think when it comes to entertainment, bigger is still better. And if you can cram uh, as much screen out there as possible, then then definitely. Now, I remember when the the first Galaxy Folds came out uh, not too long ago. It was only a couple of years ago. And they're very much pitched at the premium market, at the business market. That's sort of, uh, oh, OK, you want something swish to go with your Rolex? Check out our folding phone fold, kind of a thing. And of course, we, we all knew what happened with that, where the, the screen started displaying um, fold marks uh, in the middle. Uh, which which is not a great look when you're forking over what two thousand euro for yeah. uh, a high end phone, yeah. Um so to see them try and make it happen in the consumer space, I think is an interesting move. We we've seen some uh, some kind of adventurous form factors like we had Microsoft's uh, Duo, um, which I think no, the consensus I actually was was
0: preferred yeah, your... the Microsoft Duo. Okay right and it's simply because it it, it's a proper hinge okay Mm -hmm. and you are actually looking at two screens so you can multitask with a duo you can actually properly Mm -hmm. have something open on the left hand side and something open on the right hand side it's all very clear and it works well and you don't have any bendy screen problems or anything like that or the hinge Mm -hmm. the hinge fits in perfectly all that kind of stuff that's what I I I prefer the duo for that. But then again, if you were wanted to watch YouTube videos when, and having that hinge right in the middle, that would be a right pain it's in not the not great. Yeah,
1: I I think that's the that's a really good um, parallel to draw because Mar- Microsoft will come up and go, "This is a productivity tool." Yes, here you go. Uh, Samsung will push towards the, here's the home entertainment angle, here's the gaming angle. Mm. Um, Or,
0: you know, to complement that, here's
1: the swanky business design angle, if you will.
0: Well, if they're going down the uh, consumer end and the entertainment end, right, they're still Mm -hmm. charging business prices. And this is the other thing that kind of just made me smile, right, because Samsung are determined to make these uh, foldable phones uh, cheaper because they Mm -hmm. want to make them mainstream. So the idea is bring Mm -hmm. the price down, more people buy them, they become mainstream, da-da-da-da. But the prices being bandied around are cheaper, but you're still looking in the region of two grand for the new Fold 3 and a little over one grand for the uh, smaller Flip 3. It's like, okay, no, it reminds me a bit of the Motorola StarTAC ads. Do you remember
1: those from from the 90s? It's like the guy on the beach and there's the girl in the bikini walking towards him and she's smiling and he's like, oh, this is very nice, very pretty girl smiling at me. And then, you know, the camera reveals that she's actually on a phone, which is so small. It's up to her ear uh, (laughs) that the guy can't see it. And he realizes (laughs) almost too late that, you know, she she. Hasn't even noticed them. Uh, Are we going to see this sort of um, semi return to phones that are as small as possible or can make the most out of their screen Uh, shape as possible?
0: No, I don't. uh, Good question. I don't know. I I, I think we found the happy medium and, and it's something large enough, but still fits in your pocket. I think that's what they're at. And if they can make that foldable and and so on and so forth. Anyway, listen, we will find out on Wednesday with Samsung Unpacked and we'll have a full report for you next week on uh, Tech Radio. Uh, Speaking of smartphones, uh, Google have been making announcements as well today. They've just kind of been giving sneak, sneak, sneak previews of the Pixel 6, which is coming out later in the year. And they're going to have a pro version of it as well. Um, I think the most interesting thing about the new uh, Google Pixel is that they're following Apple. And this is going to be their first phone with a system on a chip. So everything is going to be on the processor.
1: And there's a couple of very interesting reasons for that. One, of course, is the um, uh, is Apple going that way with the M1. Uh, and of course, with the forthcoming M2, which uh, I guess we'll see towards the end of the year. Possibly. Um, possibly in a, a new line of very expensive um, MacBook Pros uh or mac pros as well seeing as we we haven't had a new one of those in a while um yeah following apple but also in the context of this global chip shortage mm. that uh, that we're dealing with um because the supply chains the supply chains are stretched because the factories in China can't churn out as much product uh, which means that we're we're in a bit of a crisis at the moment AMD, Nvidia, all having problems with supply chains. So it's a good time for companies to take charge of as much of their own components as possible. So if you can do it under the guise of, oh, and by the way, this is specially patented technology that only we have, you're doing something slightly more interesting than just sort of trying to take a chunk of the market. Um, You're doing something slightly different. Uh, Your take on it, Dusty, I I see it as... Yeah, OK, Apple have done it, but that doesn't mean the move is derivative. Um, so what's your take on it?
0: I come from an era of if you want to upgrade your computer, you can off you go. All right. So if you want to put in mm. a new uh, graphics card or sound card or, or whatever, but all these system on chips, you can do that via dongles and USB or Thunderport or, or Thunderbolt, I should say, or whatever. All right. Um I like the fact that you can upgrade your machine, so I really like that. But I also really like the sheer efficiency of system on a chip, because what happens is is that the hardware is just built perfectly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's all yeah. meant to work together, and the way Apple are doing it, so that the hardware works absolutely perfectly in sync with their software, it's brilliant. But it does Hmm. mean that you are stuck with that and there is nothing you can do with it. Um, And like one of the annoying things, I was on to... Oh, up on uh, South King Street, Uh, Compi B. And I just uh, sent them in. I said, look, I need a Mac Mini. I need a Quick, uh, but it needs to have 16 gigs of uh, RAM in it. And they're like, "Ah, it's going to take two or three weeks. They have got eight gig RAM uh, machines walking out the door, no problem, because that's what's selling, Mm. all right? But the 16 gigs is kind of like a special order and it takes a couple of extra weeks. And it's that, that's what's annoying. Do you know what I mean? If if Mm. I had a computer that was upgradable, I would walk in and I would say, okay, give me that, give me another eight gigs of RAM or 32 gigs of RAM or whatever, and I'd walk off and and, and I'm able to do it. So I don't know, it's kind of, it's, it's six of one, half a dozen of another... I think maybe I prefer the system on a chip and I think maybe I prefer everything just working seamlessly together. Okay. Um, and the... Actually, do you know what? I'll tell you, there, there, there is one major problem with this, all right? Mm-hmm. And here's, okay, you buy a, I was, not a smartphone, I was going to say like a desktop phone, if anybody ever uses them <laughs> anymore. Uh, you buy an amplifier for your stereo, you buy a television set or whatever to hang on the wall, all right? You would never, in a million years, think of upgrading any of those things. Okay. No. What happens is, is you buy it. It does the job, and that's it. Okay. The other thing that they all have in common is that you don't upgrade whatever software they're running on. All right. Mm. And what happens with the system on a chip is that Apple are going to upgrade their operating system, which means that everybody has to upgrade their software and da. And within like maybe five years, it doesn't take that long. All right. You then have a piece of hardware that is just it's not that it's not functional. It's just the software has, has, has jumped on and won't work with your hardware anymore. Yeah. And th- that is the
1: thing I was thinking of when it, when it comes to SOC is, um, yep, that's fine. Potentially, uh, you should be able to hang on to your device a bit longer because mm. it doesn't have those interoperability uh, problems. But from a repairability perspective, uh, and we have been talking about the right to repair, how does that um, how does that become a thing? Does that mean that if something goes wrong with your Pixel that you have to send it back to Google instead of being able to walk into a third-party store?
0: I think you should be able to walk into a third-party store and uh, it's, it, that's what happens with TVs and stuff like that. You can walk into a repair store or even... Washing machine, classic example, all right? Mm. If you buy a new seat and the thing is gone, uh, the, whatever guy comes around to the house will go, ah, yeah, motherboard's fried on that and needs to be replaced. I'll be back yeah. in, in in whatever, six days or whatever, and he goes off and he gets the motherboard and he just replaces the entire thing. You can do that with uh, SOC systems, do you know what I mean? By just replacing the motherboard. Or mm. if it just needs a fan that needs to be replaced, or if it's the hard drive that needs to be replaced, whatever it happens to be, like, you know, so. Anyway. Um, the other thing I was going to say about the uh, uh, the Pixel 6... <laughs> I think the big thing with the Pixel 6, though, is that they are going system-on-a-chip. That's a huge move. Uh, the Pixel mm. 6 is known for being a really, really, really good camera phone. And they are continuing to grow that. Uh, there'll be bigger, better cameras on it. And there's options with ultra-wide and telephoto lens and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the official details will be announced later on in the year. Uh, the other... Lots of from Google this week, actually. The other thing with Google... At the opposite end of the scale is that the killing mm. android. Well,
1: uh, well, that's not <laughs> the, well, quite that dramatic,
0: but it is something that we've talked
1: about over the last few weeks mm. about you know Microsoft and Apple and drawing a line under software mm. that that just doesn't work uh, terribly uh, well anymore, or that they don't want to devote time to supporting. Uh, because we all know what happened with Windows XP. I mean, it it basically went, what, 15 years longer than... (laughs) It had a tremendously long life cycle. Um, It it worked almost too good. Hmm. Um, So we're now in a stage where we are starting to see older versions of software just having a line drawn under them. So the next version of Android... Well, the next version. If you own uh, an Android phone running 2.3.7... Uh, which is gingerbread you are out of luck from the 27th of September that is when uh, support for that version of Android ends do you wish to guess what percentage of Android users this
0: actually affects oh God I should imagine now gingerbread gingerbread has gone back like 10 years now yes it is it is about 10 years old yeah even even for me that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Five years, you know, kind I'll of grumble. Ten years is like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, ancient. Uh, I don't know, 1%. 0.2 of a percent.
1: Now, there, there you go. go. And that just shows the explosion of use in Android phones mm. and ease of uh, upgradability and all that kind of thing. Mm. But, you know, in the same way that the large companies draw a line under their own software products, it's good to see the same being done with Android. Um, because it is just going to become an, uh, an increasing security risk as the years go by because the APIs change. Uh, one of the things that will happen if you, if you happen to own a gingerbread phone from, from this from september 27th is you will have trouble logging into the native apps so YouTube, uh, your mail, anything like that that's a, that's a Google native app, app. Mm. it will probably kick you out. Uh, you will still be able to access things through the browser. Uh, like what I, like on anything, but uh, the native apps uh, just will stop working,
0: basically, slowly but surely. Well, anyway, it only affects 0.2% of people, so uh, we won't worry about it too much. The last thing from yeah. Google is they have uh, made some announcements with their new Chrome operating system uh, for the Chromebooks and stuff like that, uh, and they are now building in Google Meet as a default app. Mm. Um, but they are... Um, Recognising the fact that Zoom is is so incredibly popular and a lot of people either have to or prefer using Zoom. Um, So Zoom has now got an app available in the Play Store that is compatible with the Chrome OS.
1: Well, you know, there's a very good reason why Google would do that uh, as well. Uh, Because for the same reason that when you get a new computer, when you open up the browser for the first time, it gives you a selection of what do you want your default browser to be. I think pretty much every service that is going to come preloaded on a PC is going to have to give you uh, an option uh, because that's what got uh, Microsoft into so much trouble with Internet Explorer Mm. being the default browser in Windows. Do you see? So anything that comes preloaded on a computer, uh, you're going to have to. You know,
0: give people options. Ah, okay, Grant. So it's kind of like uh, Google Meet is here; it's installed; it's ready to go. Do you want to use it, or would you prefer to use something else and go to all the trouble yes. of downloading it? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. ten seconds to download it, and be another mm. five seconds to install it, and then maybe there you, you know two seconds to log in. You don't want to do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly Google yeah. Meet is here okay listen that's it Google we're, we're Googled that. we're done with them uh, let's move on to uh, our friends at Facebook ah uh, my heart bursts with pride and joy and warmth every time I talk about Facebook <laughs>
1: yeah well I, I mean last week we talked about the metaverse mm. so how can possibly how can Facebook possibly improve on that story
0: for awesomeness so the metaverse was essentially uh, they want to build an alternative universe within Facebook. So instead yeah, they, of just they looking want, at text, you will have a, an avatar or a computer version of yourself on screen. Yeah, and they, the they
1: want the version of the internet that you were promised from every cyberpunk film and novel ever.
0: So Facebook, uh, as we all know, uh, a terrible reputation for privacy. All right. Of course. Um, so now they've been going on about everything's encrypted. Everything's encrypted. WhatsApp is encrypted. End to end. Nobody can see. All right. Um, which is, which is kind of fine. So now what they're working on is uh, software to analyse encrypted data so that they can target advertising to you. <laughs> okay, so when we say target encrypted data, right,
1: are we talking about the metadata of this phone was on here, this phone sent a message, this user is in this country because they let us, or are they actually looking at our messages for keywords?
0: I think that they will be looking at the messages for keywords, but they might not be able to see the message. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. So it's kind of yeah. like, you know, kind of, I, yeah, I suppose metadata is a good way of looking at it because maybe the metadata will include keywords. So this is it's an possible. email about mum's 80th birthday or hardcore porn,
1: whatever it is that you have to if you Or if you've done a bit of country hopping, Maybe maybe you might start seeing more uh, holiday ads, uh, even though your messages yeah. are apparently encrypted and they can't get to them.
0: Now, before I completely blast Facebook for this, uh, it's a process which they called a uh, homophobic encryption. And okay, it's also homophobic. worked on. It's also being worked on by Microsoft and Google and Kelsipree's Amazon. So they're all at it Okay. So the name of the game is all right, uh, there's your data. It's encrypted. We don't know what's in it. Mm. But we know what it's about. (laughs) I think that seems to be what they're kind of going for. And the only reason they want to know what it's about is that they can target you with appropriate advertising.
1: Hmm. Mm. I'm not, I'm not convinced, which is to say
0: mm. I don't feel safe b- about this. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, that's, a, that's that's what they're all up to. Uh, finally, on the news front for this week, uh, YouTube. Two okay. stories with uh, YouTube. Uh, I did say that they've banned Sky News. Not our uh, beloved Sky News here in no. Ireland, but Sky News in Australia. Now, it's very
1: important to mention that the experience of Sky News in Australia is, is not the same as the UK. Yeah. News. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not, not in presentation, not in style, mm-hmm. not in, you know, intention, even though they're, they're both owned by uh, Murdoch. Murdoch. Yeah. Uh, they're all News Corp's uh, companies and mm-hmm. channels. Um, the Sky News that is in Australia is much more akin to Fox News
0: in America, which is also owned by News International. Mm hmm. So uh, basically, uh, Australia is kind of an interesting My sister in law is in Australia, uh, so we kind of keeping an eye on uh, Australian news. And of course, they're going into more lockdowns and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, and I think the re- the reason the why they're still going into so many lockdowns is because they haven't been vaccinating an awful lot of the population. And I yeah. don't think there's been a rush on vaccinating the population because when COVID started, they just essentially closed the doors and went, "Hey, we're an island. Stay the hell away." <laughs> Yeah, you're yeah. infected. Go away. And because of that, it hasn't been a huge thing. Like everybody in Ireland knows somebody who's had it. Uh, there's a good chance that you know, know somebody or a friend of a friend who had a relative who had it and passed away because of it. All right. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. uh, would, would that be true of you? Yeah, I I certainly know a few people that got quite, quite sick with COVID. Certainly true of me, all right? Uh, And I know people have passed away because of it. In Australia, not so much the case, all right? Because, and New Zealand, I suppose, would be the same. So that's why, as you say, when you kind of think of that, it's not as big a problem in Australia because they kept everybody out. They're slow with the uh, vaccination and that's why they're going for lockdowns. That's something like a Fox News type service, called Sky News Australia would be on going "Ah, ah, it's allowed blah 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 blah. why are they doing this to us they're affecting our civil liberties da 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 and all that kind of stuff right freedom and that is why YouTube banned Sky News Australia for COVID-19 misinformation misinformation it's not really kind of I don't think it's going to be a huge thing because I mean there's what 60 no there isn't there's 40 million people in Australia 30 million people it's not it's not a huge population for a big country and of course, you know, what percentage of them are going to be watching on YouTube anyway? So don't, it's not going to affect their, their viewership figures. But what's interesting about this from a media point of view is the fact that YouTube have kicked a respected news organisation off YouTube.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this isn't, you know, Newsmax or One no. America or, you know, one of these fringe cable channels. Yeah, it's a global uh, brand. Yeah,
0: it's a global it's a, brand. It's a-
1: Global brand, mm. uh, so that will make an awful lot of people sit up and take notice. Mm. Um, I mean, does this mean that we're not too far away from seeing, you know, Fox News in America get a slap on the wrist for one of their um, so-called news anchors? Uh, <laughs> they don't even call themselves anchors. We'll what do they wait call themselves.
0: See when we, when 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 we get the magnificent return of Mister Trump, <laughs> it'll all blow up again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't even, don't even. Don't even joke about that. Listen, last story for you uh, this week, also about YouTube. Uh, they're bringing in, I watch YouTube a lot. The one thing that drives me bananas about YouTube, can you guess? Ads? Absolutely. And it's not the fact that the ads are pre roll before you watch the video. That's fine, you expect that, okay? It's mm. not even the fact that you have some ads that are in the middle of the video, and, you know, kind of even at that, it's kind of like it's OK. It's the fact that a lot of the ads just go slap bang in the middle of a sentence. Oh, God, yes. I hate that. Oh, I my that. God, that drives me absolutely insane. And that's something that YouTube really have to do something about. Anyway, if the ads do drive you mad, uh, they're trying a thing in other countries in Europe now. That, oh, I don't know why they didn't do Ireland on this, because they've picked really small, inconsequential company, countries in Ireland. Uh, here, they there, there. So the people that live there, these are not in No, but what countries. I'm saying is Ireland will be on a par with Belgium or Denmark or Luxembourg or Norway. Do you know what I mean? It's not like yeah. we're huge or in the centre of things yeah. or a massive country, all right? So why yeah. do you the
1: So these thing? are the countries that are participating in this uh, trial.
0: Seven euro a month is what will mm-hmm. cost you uh, and you will see no ads on YouTube. That's it. All right, you don't get access to their music. You can't watch uh, videos offline or download videos or play stuff in the background while you're using other apps or whatever. The only thing that that seven euro buys you is it gets rid of the darn ads. You said earlier on the show that you really like uh, watching YouTube. Would you pay seven euro a month to get rid of the ads?
1: If I cannot have background listening in YouTube, I'm not interested. If I don't have the ability to download... Uh, videos on a premium service mm. i'm not interested because mm-hmm. that is that is the most annoying thing about youtube i will have you know um a vidcast playing a video playing on youtube and i get on the bus or whatever i just i don't or i want to save battery or whatever i there, i don't need to watch the person talk to the camera um so i switch the app off and uh or rather i return to the home screen because maybe i want to check my mail or something like that uh and
0: the video stops
1: it's so annoying. It is mm-hmm. so so annoying.
0: Well, it's designed um, to make you buy a subscription, isn't it? Well, uh, it
1: won't be helping me buy a subscription. I I tell you that much. If that if that is not part of a subscription service,
0: I'm not even going to consider it.
1: <laughs>
0: Grand. All right. Well, listen, let's wrap it up with the uh, news there for this week. Thank you, as always, Niall, uh, for the chats and the insights. Remember, we keep you up to date uh, daily on all things tech with early updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Tech We're used to thinking of user experience in the sense of website design, but can the same principles be applied to how we engage with, say, restaurants or even, as I said earlier, the health service? Brian Goff is a lecturer in service and interaction design at NCAD and he told Niall Kitson why companies should consider why what happens behind the scenes with staff is as important as how they deal with customers.
1: When we think of service design, because it's a a reasonably new kind of uh, jargon, I suppose, or or new phrase that people mightn't be familiar with, we immediately think of, you know, a new development, uh, 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 for example, maybe a, a piece of crossover technology that we wouldn't be familiar with before. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it hasn't been called such, but service design has been with us for quite a while.
2: Yeah, it has. And I think we can make allusions to all sorts of services that appeared and emerged in um, post-war Europe or indeed America. Um, But more recently, of course, we're starting to see as we move away from products and and sort of hard deliverable goods and tangibly designed goods, and more to sort of software, as it were, that the service becomes all important because it's the main differentiator you have against your competition who ultimately are buying the same products or having it made in the same warehouse.
1: I think a really interesting example of it uh, that, you know, it, it has been with us for so long is the example of McDonald's, which pretty much revolutionized the the food service industry just by looking at sort of the what happens behind the curtain, if you will.
2: Yeah, and I guess if anyone has seen that film, The Founder, then they'll have a clear idea about um, what, was, what was happening there. Uh, originally set up by two brothers, and I can't remember, were their names? McDonald's? Um, and they applied a very sort of rigorous process backstage, as we would say. Um, so behind the scenes where um, they were using sort of just-in-time um, management processes to uh, yeah, speed up and improve the experience for users. Uh, those who are obviously consuming the product,
1: and what what was interesting really was sort of how, how the the attention to detail that they had there was sort of okay buns go over here. Okay, we we map things out over here, and uh, and that wonderful scene where they they had a tennis court, and they basically drew things out uh, in um, chalk on mm. the on the floor and did sort of time trials with people to see uh, see how quickly they could get burgers and fries out and and this sort of um i guess what we'd call now wireframing uh, mm. in web design
2: yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of, I, I'm, I'm not entirely clear on whether McDonald's was alone in pursuing this kind of um, slant. I guess, you know, it, it might have been something that was being experimented with by other businesses, but certainly McDonald's is still with us today um, and recognizably is the first of the fast food restaurants to have pursued this um, kind of route. And as much as anyone might find them uh, uncool now, on some level, um, but you still have to give them credit for for what they achieved in terms of innovating and completely, um, you know, disrupting the the existing restaurant or diner model that existed at that time. So moving forward
1: then to to the eighties, when we finally saw sort of a, a codification, if you will, of of these principles. In a, I, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal, there was a, a very influential article written there.
2: Yeah, so there was, I mean, a lot of times when service design is being talked about historically, um, because I think the important thing to note here is that service design exists within the design space and is for the most part um, taught in our school, uh, and that's not to say that businesses, uh, business colleges, aren't adopting this as well. Um, but I guess within the service design space, that when we refer back to the histor- historical record, uh, the. Birth point, if you like, is an article that was published in the Harvest Business Review titled Designing Services That Deliver by uh, G. Lynn Shostak, in which she starts to kind of outline what the advantages are of actually thinking about uh, your business in a more detailed level. Um, and she mentions actually uh, McDonald's um, in this piece. Um, but not only that, she introduces something which hadn't really been with us before, which is referred to as the blueprint which is a key artifact of service design. Um, And that really just, the blueprint just describes the user journey um, from beginning to end. And there are a few different layers to it. It's like a layered cake. So you have what the user sees, uh, what the business is actually doing in terms of activities to deliver the service, and the various different, what we call touch points or channels, in other words, uh, you know, the devices that are being used to convey the service. Now, that could be everything from telephone to, uh, you know, an, a, a kiosk or a checkout counter um, and how all of those things are all orchestrated together in order to provide the experience and indeed generate profit for the business. And I suppose when we're, when we're starting with the, the,
1: I guess, the, the building blocks of um, creating a service or what we call the, the artifacts, what exactly constitutes an artifact?
2: Well, I mean, I'm using the word or that term loosely, but um, I suppose that ultimately you're dealing with an exchange between people um, and those people being customers and those other people being those perhaps who are the business owners or those who work in the business. Um, And in order for that to happen, we can generate a, a wide range of artifacts that knit together. And I've mentioned, you know, that it could be, uh, anything like print. I mean, for example, it could be a printed leaflet. It doesn't necessarily need to be anything technical. There are a lot of services out there that have no technicality to them whatsoever. Um, and that needs to be thought about. So maybe perhaps the the, the easiest way to explain it in some ways is I'm going to borrow from um, somebody else here who well, I'll credit later as soon as I remember his name, it'll come back to me shortly, is that service design is channel agnostic. In other words, it really doesn't matter what kind of artifact or what way you're, you're using. There's no prescribed um, anything to use as long as you're conveying that service um, in the best way possible for the user and obviously the most beneficial way for the business, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, um, and sort of the the second pillar, if you will, is, is sort of people, and we'll we'll jump back into that because I think it's a really interesting point. Um, and the third pillar that people talk about is processes, uh, and I suppose this this will refer back to the the people element. But when we talk about the processes involved, of course, there's the the internal and the external uh, as well. You know, from mm. being able to say, you know, hello, have a nice day, kind of a thing to the to the customer, to maybe having so uh, a fairly robust we'll say HR policy uh, in place in the background.
2: Right exactly and I mean I think the thing that we're saying to our students a lot of the time is that we're not expecting them to become um, crafts people. In other words you know if there's something to be done that needs to be done by someone who is specializing in UX or in graphic design or indeed a copywriter that they just get really good at identifying that that's the opportunity Um, And indeed, they are able to assemble a really robust brief and then can direct out that process. So that particular touch point or that interaction that people have with the business is uh, well considered and is a good experience. Uh, which I guess reflects nicely back
1: on this this element of people where you're dealing with services that on the one end might require a fairly low skill level that can be taught quite easily. I, again, to look at the, the McDonald's model, scaling all the way up to specialist um, services like the health service, for example.
2: Yeah. And and obviously there are a lot of opportunities anywhere where there's um, a sort of process-led uh, service. We collaborate every year with, and quite actually continuously, not just every year, with the Matter Hospital and we have a really good relationship with them. And they are really uh, progressive in terms of identifying uh, areas where design can help um, in, in the services they deliver. Now, that includes the medical device masters it includes the interaction design masters and it includes the service design masters so we're not we're not unique in that way but to give you an example we have one student who is doing their final uh, major project for the for the year and is collaborating with the matter hospital
1: so uh, when we're looking at how um, systems evolve uh, and the level of feedback that comes uh, comes back for for tweaking and improving thereon. Uh, I suppose it's really important to differentiate once again between the two sort of project management styles that we have. Sort of the the waterfall where it's it's kind of it's a big project and it's done, and uh, the, that agile methodology where you know it's a constant conversation. So, to which extent does service design rely on a
2: constant con- uh, conversation? At the heart of most design disciplines that I've had experience with, I would say communications at the heart of them all. Um, if you consider the fact that in the context of, uh, I'm going to talk about interaction design or UX design, if we develop an artifact for a, an engineer to uh, code, um, who owns the who is actually in charge of the final artifact is not the designer. Generally, it's the engineer, which is part of the reason why UX has, has such a strong um, place at the table in product companies. Um, so, you know, again, I think it's really about being good, a good communicator and also being, uh, in the context of service design, being, having a good curious research mind, um, and being able to kind of really trying to get as close as you can to what users are doing and how they're behaving, in order to find solutions and answers that you can um, and that you can manifest I think as as hard facts. I think
1: that behavioral element is is so important because one imagines, you know, when you're sitting down, you're mapping out your customer journey that it's, it's it could be a reasonably theoretical thing. However, uh, in order to get that raw data, if you will, you you really have to sit down and get into the nitty gritty of how are people actually using things, you know, for that, you know, visit to the to the hospital or the dentist or or the the. The uh, restaurant, you know, how quickly were you met? What was the person like? How quickly was your service? Uh, I guess all these things feed into, uh, again, that constant um, will to improve.
2: Yeah, and it's iterative. And you mentioned um, Agile and you've mentioned Waterfall. Agile is obviously everything that people aspire to now, or most businesses uh, aspire to. But I don't think that anyone has necessarily arrived at the perfect solution. Um, because a lot of this is so contextual, but I do think that in the context of, say, s- service designers working in-house or researchers working in-house, um, that they are going to be involved in tight feedback loops with either you know the product team or product owners, product managers. Um, and so that involves a leg- level of rigor and discipline as well. So it's, yes, they're going out into the field. Yes, they're observing people or engaging with the users, but they also have to get good at documenta- documenting what it is they've actually um, heard and producing it then in a meaningful way that is explicitly clear for whoever receives it. Um, and that's one thing, again, it's, it's like making sure that there isn't any ambiguity at that point of transfer, uh, whether it be to a designer or to an engineer.
1: So you've made mention of some of the things that are going on in NCAD at the moment, uh, some of the things one, one would imagine in product design, which is, which is uh, almost a given for an, uh, an institution like that, but, but also bringing service design into the, into the university, uh, into the college as well. So how, how is that approach working out at the moment?
2: Well, I, I think it's important to mention, actually, that I, I myself am very recent to NCD. In fact, I come from industry and I've worked in design for over 20 years, more recently in the UX space. And I've worked on certain projects that have service design leanings, et cetera, as well. Um, and I think that that about says it, uh, that that says it for quite a lot of the tutors in the college. They come from really rich backgrounds. Um, and so if I may just speak objectively about the college I feel that NCAD are incredibly progressive in the suite of courses that they're offering um, at the, right now. You know, it's an exciting place to be. Um, the product design department is, is a really exciting place to be and to work and to teach in. And I'm learning an awful lot from, from being there. Um, NCAD has traditionally, the course was originally industrial design, and that would have been much more about delivering hard product, And of course it still is to a degree, but there is more acknowledgement now that it's not just about crafting the actual end results. It's also about understanding where it sits in terms of context, um, processes, uh, user research, and so on. So there's a lot of crossover actually between product say, and then the UX um, or interaction design, uh, I should say, degree program at the moment. And that's always a conversation about how, how much overlap is there and should there be, et cetera, you know, because both courses are curious about each other's courses. Um, and then on top of that service design, I mean, we see ourselves and, and we would like to be this, there is, there are established universities in terms of service design and I would name them there, Glasgow, um, NC in Paris, Keist in Cologne and then um, the Polytechnic in Milan Um, and our ambition is very much to try and actually level up to that um, same necklace of colleges and provide the same quality of training and indeed produce service designers um, into the same group of service designers that might be coming from those universities Um, so we're ambitious with what we're doing And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Brian Goff, a
0: lecturer in service and interaction design at NCAD. That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or of course you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall, thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or... Or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech
2: Central.